Let's move uh, from employers to weapons. <laughs> I think that's such a interesting segue, but I've got my outline right here. And I do want to talk about it um, primarily because, um, well, we live in America and America is a heavily armed entity without making a comment and without making a judgment one direction or another. It's just a fact that um, a lot of people in America are armed and I've chatted with doctors and their comment is, you know what, I've got a, um, I've got a permit to, for concealed carry and if someone comes to my office, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about an armed conflict in my office. And on the surface, I kind of understand the, that thinking, but it may be shallow thinking. I think if you're thinking about security more broadly, one wonders, you know, where um, weapons fit into the picture here um, as it relates to training as it relates to liability. And the other thing is so obvious, most of our offices are made of sheetrock. <laughs> and you know, if a, if a bullet misses the mark, as it frequently does, if one is not properly trained, um, it's going to go through the sheetrock and where it ends up is anybody's guess, may end up in your waiting room, it may end up in your, the neighboring doctor's waiting room. You may, you may take out your neighboring doctor so I'm sure this is a this is a potentially complex conversation, but let's get started with it. What do you what kind of advice do you give about um, physicians and or nurses um, carrying weapons uh, into the office? And if so, uh, if they're going to do it, what what are the concerns as it relates to training and liability? Well, I'll start with this one. You know, this is a topic that is very near and dear to me. This is a question that comes up frequently from persons who want to carry firearms into houses of worship, uh, teachers wanting to carry firearms in the classroom, airline pilots, aboard aircraft, and even pharmacists. And Paul can talk to you a little bit more about his experience with dealing with pharmacists in this area. But you know, we we see the need and we understand the desire, uh, but there are certain requirements that really need to be met if an individual decides to carry a firearm in the workplace or or at the the house of worship or in the classroom. Now, the the firearm itself has to be legal. Um, the carrier has to be licensed in the state or the the county of residence. I mean, that's absolutely essential. Uh, the user has to have had adequate firearms training and demonstrated a proficiency with that weapon, uh, making sure that they're certified and that that certification is documented. And all of this is essential for legal liabilities because, you know, in this case, we would say, man, you really need to carry a lot of substantial personal and general liability insurance if you're going to do that. If you're non-law enforcement or non-military and you haven't had that extended lengthy period of training in firearms proficiency because you know Paul and I in in our in our business we do security consulting and we do private investigations but we do a lot of litigation support to law firms that's primarily our investigative piece of our business and you know we we go through scenarios and we think about the what ifs and so you know, an individual who is uh, a known member of a house of worship has been asked by the pastor to uh, to carry his weapon because he has a concealed weapon and, and he, he's legally carrying his firearm. 
that individual needs to be prepared and as, as well as the house of worship or whether it's it's a classroom or on an aircraft be ready for the liability that can be involved with that because paul and i have seen even with trained law enforcement officers when a, when a crisis escalates and there's a situation where a weapon is pulled and you're going to you make the decision to fire that weapon we've seen and we know of police officers who within you know less than five yards even with their training will miss that target so a lot of times you you know and we we see things like what happens in a doctor's office for instance if a doctor or a nurse is carrying a weapon and they uh they are confronted with someone else who's carrying a weapon then they decide mm -hmm. to pull it and that weapon is fired what happens if the adrenaline starts flowing and that individual who's who's doing the the, the weapon firing mm -hmm. um is you know is is not on target they don't hit their target what if they miss and they hit the mother in the waiting room holding that child and or they hit the child we're looking at you know enormous liability and we've done investigations in this area in the past and we can tell you that you know attorneys are going to look for that wrong personal injury case wrongful death case so you know we we look at it from many different perspectives we understand the need but we really see that there is a substantial amount of liability involved that should be considered and and we understand too and we see from talking to individuals who do desire to carry weapons in these areas they don't really understand that they haven't given that thought um, Paul can share a little bit about a situation with some uh, robbery, pharmacy robbery training that he did uh, and the individual who uh, actually was armed. And uh, I, I let him share that story with you. Please. Yeah, we uh, in our, our uh, pharmacy robbery uh, survival seminar, uh, and we've given this many times uh, across the country to pharmacy associations and uh, even to pharmacy schools. The, the number one question that we encounter is, should I arm myself in the pharmacy? Um, our advice generally is no. Uh, uh, just don't do it. There's a lot of risk with that. Don't do it. Um, but if you determine that it's absolutely necessary, uh, then, then you have to understand the law. You have to be legal, understand the risks. And the most important thing is to, to train, train, train. We had one situation where uh, one of our pharmacists was uh, in West Virginia, actually. Uh, he had attended the uh, uh, seminar, and uh, later on we found out that he had been engaged in a shooting in his pharmacy and had uh, killed one guy, and uh, uh, one guy got away. And uh, we uh, 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 managed to acquire the videotape from that. It was uh, the security cameras captured the incident on video. And when you looked at the, uh, the video. He looked like a professional shooter. Uh, it was it was a, a beautiful thing, uh, mm -hmm. uh, if that's possible. But it was uh, perfectly executed, and and uh, and he survived and uh, probably saved some lives in this particular situation. Um, we contacted him and we spoke with him, and uh, he he carries a gun everywhere. It's just what he does. Uh, he 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 has a, a a gun at church. He has a gun at work. Uh, all of the pharmacists in his uh, uh, in his uh, business all were armed. Uh, he even has a, a firing range at his house, and he trains every week. That's the type of training that's required. You you simply have to shoot all the time because you own that bullet from the time it leaves the weapon until the time it stops moving, and you're responsible for its uh, 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 damage uh, along the way. Yeah, 
It's the same principle as learning how to fly a plane. And um, years ago, there used to be a particular plane called a doctor killer because it was such a nice plane. But many of the doctors who purchased that plane didn't have enough training. They didn't have enough hours to properly fly the plane with all its nuances. And occasionally it would go down. Um, but the point is, as it relates to aviation, if you're going to take the risk of flying, learn how to do it, be properly trained, do it over and over and over again so that it's um, subconscious. You're not really thinking about it. I mean, there's a difference between taking a weekend course and feeling as if you're proficient as opposed to training every weekend over a year. I mean, people who have been in battle, um, served in the military and in battle, say that it, in many senses, it's moments of crisis uh, punctuated by great great hours of boredom. And that's how they describe flying too. But the only way you really figure out whether, um, you know, the only way you figure out how to do it properly, how to manage that occasional crisis by overtraining, just being aware of your circumstances and making sure that if you use it, you use it judiciously and do it to, min to minimize any harm around you. I think that segues very nicely into um, I've had this question where um, doctors concerned about a patient coming in who is a threat. Is that patient a threat for violence? They think so. They're not sure. And they're concerned about telling them not to come in because they're worried it may make the problem worse. The patient will get inflamed. And sometimes we've talked about bringing in a guard for a brief period of time. Should that guard be armed? Should that guard be not armed? And I don't know if that's just security theater, whether it actually does something. Are there better tools that can be used to manage that unique situation I just described? We'll get into some vignettes in just a few minutes. These vignettes are based on real-world situations that we've had. But before we get into that, any thoughts in general about temporarily hiring a guard, whether they're armed or not armed? Sure. Uh, first, I think you have to realize the role of a security guard. For example, if you call Pinkerton's, just pick one, but Pinkerton's is an example, they'll send you a, a, a person in a, in a uniform. That person has had uh, a few dozen hours of training at most, and uh, their role is to observe and report. Uh, they're not there to interdict uh, a critical incident. Uh, they're there to uh, create a deterrent from that occurring and to report if it does occur. And, and that's their role and that's what they'll do and no more. Uh, if you have true risk that you've identified that you know is real risk, you, our first recommendation would be to hire off-duty law enforcement officers. Mm -hmm. uh, most law enforcement agencies, or at least many law enforcement agencies, allow their, their officers and deputies to work off-duty hours. Uh, and you know they'll, they'll come in, they're licensed, they're bonded, you know they're trained and they can uh, create a tremendous deterrent, but they can also interdict if that situation occurs. In the absence of law enforcement officer availability, uh, there are executive protection agents. Uh, it's a higher level of service. Uh, it's, you don't find them advertised like you would a uh, uh, Pinkerton, for example, uh, but they're primarily, they do uh, close protection for uh, high net worth families and things of that nature, and and they're available in the marketplace, and they're they're expensive, uh, but they're good. Uh, for the most part, they come from the military. Many are retired 
law enforcement agencies, even uh, to include secret service agents. And we deal with them from time to time in our business uh, when we have uh, need of those folks uh, assisting our clients. So uh, that's the level of service that you're looking for if you have a true risk. But always remember, if you have threat that you believe is imminent, that call is 911, not to a security guard. What about if you hire an off-duty police officer to be around for a week, two weeks, do they can they can and do they wear a uniform so that everybody knows coming in that there's a police officer there? It can be either way. Um, uh, it, it, and, and honestly, it's it's your preference. So there's the uh, you know the obvious uh, deterrent factor to having a uniform presence, but then you also have the the uh, idea of why is a police officer in the waiting room, uh, mm-hmm. or why is a security guard in the waiting room? Well, it's so, a double-edged sword. You don't want to freak of, people out. Exactly. Of course. of course. We talked a little bit about um, hide, run, fight, um, which is the tools that you would use for active shooter training or active shoot, how you would manage an active shooter, just to remember the the mnemonic. But um, in terms of training, do you do, you do a, a deeper test run on that? I mean, are there ways to get this internalized into people other than just having a an index card where it has those three words on it? I mean, sure, they're easy to remember, but how how do you and maybe it's not even appropriate for a medical office to do it, but I'm going to guess you're going to take the contrary viewpoint that it's appropriate for every office. We live in America, and it's it's not unheard of for there to be an active shooter. And in any situation where there truly has been an active shooter, being able to implement the um, the advice probably has saved lives. So what's the extent that people should have uh, – let me back up. How much how much training should people have in terms of thinking about an active shooter, and what should an individual medical practice be thinking about in terms of an active shooter? Yeah, we um, you know Paul and I have some experience in this area, and we we call our training active assailant survival skills, and we've we've substituted you know based upon the FBI's recommendation, law enforcement's re- recommendation. Um, we've substituted the word shooter uh, for assailant. And so uh, we call it active assailant survival skills training. We've trained probably over 12,000 people in this area, uh, included, you know, in corporate manufacturing plants to from distribution centers and their corporate headquarters to houses of worship. I've even done training to garden clubs and seroptimus mm-hmm. clubs, if you will, community organizations. Um, That's a broad group. It is a very broad group. And uh, and surprisingly, you know, you wouldn't think that this would be a topic that a garden club uh, would be interested in. But these ladies were very interested in in hearing from me. You know, what we look at in this training, we're um, we customize it to our audience, of course. And but we we look at the behavior of the active uh, assailant. Uh, You know, what's what what is it that causes an assailant to to act violently? Uh, is there some injustice? You know, is he looking for vindication, anger, hatred, suicidal ideation? These are all things that we normally see in the behavior of these shooters. There are red flags also that we talk about: uh, domestic violence, financial problems, job loss, divorce, child custody issues. You know, anything like this can can certainly um, uh, prompt an active shooter to take action. 
And then uh, we talk about location, that that's important, that these are targeted attacks. We want to make sure that our audience understands that um, active shooters have reasons to go to the locations that they do. And we describe these in our training. And the, the, the training that, that Paul and I provide uh, is uh, an hour longer, but we do emphasize the Department of Homeland Security run, hide, fight technique that we talked about earlier. That's important. We show the video. Uh, we talk about some of our experiences as well, and uh, we give good tips on survival. So is it important? Yes. I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's uh, there a, a, a broad range of interest here. But, you know, should this be uh, training for a doctor's office? Uh, I would certainly say yes, because we talked about conflict and we've talked about the probability of things happening. And if there has ever been a situation where a person has gone to a doctor's office, I mean, it certainly demonstrates if they were uh, if they were carrying a weapon, certainly uh, the need to understand how to survive. Uh, so that's the real emphasis. I, I think, uh, you know, I would certainly support it, uh, training for doctor's offices if there's an interest. I think it's a great idea. I think that every practice should at least think about it and go through this type of training. There's no downside to doing it. And in a perfect world, you go an entire career, you'll never have a rotten patient conflict that escalates in potential violence. But if it does, you'll at least have the tools to know how to manage it and save lives. I think it's a no-brainer. Before we get into some vignettes, why don't we um, just talk about having access to a trusted security expert on speed dial. As I opened, I get calls from clients for medical justice members, they're asking, uh, they're worried, they're worried about a particular patient. They cannot ascertain whether the patient is a true danger or not. Why? They're not a psychiatrist and they have no experience really with people becoming violent. And I think if they could just call someone directly, perhaps they could have a conversation in terms of fleshing out the pieces of information that would help them make a better decision as to whether to um, to fear this individual or to um, to believe that it won't be as much of a problem. I, I think the the uncertainty associated with how to manage such individuals and nobody wants to overreact. I mean, you feel kind of foolish if you if you call the police to do a check and it was all a big misunderstanding. But on the other hand, the flip side is also true. If you underreact, and you don't take any action because you didn't ask the right questions, people can be injured, perhaps even killed. So talk about the benefits of having an individual that is trusted that you can call someone on speed dial. Yeah, we have clients who, who call us, uh, certainly uh, human resource directors that call us and, and uh, when they're getting ready to terminate uh, an employee, for instance, one who has uh, you know, been involved in some type of or they think that that person might be violent uh, or a threat, they call us for advice. Uh, I think that, you know, I'd kind of describe it like this. Uh, if, you're, if you're sick or in pain, you call a doctor. If you're mm -hmm. charged with the crime, uh, maybe you call an attorney to represent you. Mm -hmm. uh, to mitigate risk to your safety and security in the workplace, you call a security professional. And it, it's, it's, it's a, that professional should be one who is, has a, a real demonstrated expertise in risk mitigation and risk management. They need to be licensed and insured. Uh, you know, we in our practice, we're on call 24 seven and it doesn't matter what time zone. Uh, 
our clients are in if they need to call us. And that 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 comes from our law enforcement experience uh, where we accept that and we embrace that, that we want our clients to be able to call us 24 seven anytime they have an issue and for discussions, just as you described, Dr. Siegel. Um, you know, an, an, an individual, a, a security professional should be knowledgeable of what kind of risk and threats do take place in the workplace and, and may be experienced in having lived through crises. And if you've had a career in law enforcement, uh, you learn a lot about problem solving and dealing with crises. Let's jump into some uh, vignettes. These are all real world. They've, they're from clients who have called our our office. Here's one. Let's start with the doctor terminates a, a specific doctor-patient relationship. Why? Because the patient is demanding, aggressive, loud, intimidating. And um, after the doctor terminates the relationship, the practice is concerned. This patient will show up and make a scene. So can this be preemptive? And what if the patient announces, hey, look, I'm on my way to the practice and I'm going to be there shortly? Is it too soon to call the police? I mean, you don't, again, you don't want to overreact, but you don't want to uh, underreact. How do you find that sweet spot? Yeah, I think with, uh, with the first part of what you described, uh, the relationship between the patient and the doctor, the patient's demanding, aggressive, loud, and intimidating. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, get, we understand that. The practice is concerned the patient will show up and make a scene. The question would be, to what extent? Uh, just be loud, noisy, verbally abusing, uh, what kind of scene would this person cause? But as you have asked your additional questions, what if they announce that they're driving to the practice, they're on their way now? Uh, yeah. You better prepare for the conflict and you better think about de-escalating that conflict and have having had training in advance in how to do that de-escalation. Um, is it too soon to call the police? If you think even that they are going to be a person of a violent nature, I don't think it's ever too soon to call the police. Paul and I always encourage that. Threatening situations can't always rely on your security guards to be there for you, or if you don't have one, you have no backup. Uh, what harm does it really cause to call 911? And we always encourage that, you know, to find that balance between over and under reacting. Sometimes we see that people. Well, I, they say, I'm, I didn't want to call the police. I just wasn't certain that they would respond or that they would think that my conflict is not really a conflict. That's not the case. Calling 911 is essential. I've also seen it where um, the police will show up and maybe they do little more than just separate the parties to make everybody go their separate way, which is mission accomplished. You're just trying to get people to, to de-escalate and having someone from law enforcement may be, may be useful in terms of, in fact, it often is quite useful to get this particular patient to think just for a couple seconds that if they don't stand down, they're going to jail. And maybe that is the fine line. It gets people to become more, it gets an irrational person to become a little bit more rational. So I think that's a great idea. Um, what if this patient has a history of violence, for example, domestic abuse? Now you've I just added an additional dimension to it where you know this person. You absolutely know this person has a history of violence coming in. I mean, I'm going to guess your answer is the same on steroids, which is, yes, call, call the police. Do not wait. Continue. Make that call right now. 
Well, I think, you know, we talked earlier about hardening the target and Paul and I talk about uh, concentric layers of security. I mean, if you're thinking about a target itself, uh, hardening the target on the outside is essential. If you call the police, the police respond. There's an officer there in uniform with a vehicle. Anything that can uh, create a barrier that keeps that person away from going inside the practice and causing more harm it would be essential, uh, would be certainly be something to consider. And even if the police hadn't responded, uh, if some action could be taken to keep that person outside to maybe de-escalate, the, the situation, uh, rather than bringing it inside where additional harm can be caused, would be a, an important thing to do as well. I mean, I'm trying to think, I'm thinking out loud about, let's say you've got a waiting room full of people, let's say 20 people, we're, we're, we're pretending this is pre-COVID, but let's say you've got a waiting room of 15 people, um, it certainly would be a challenge to get all 15 people out of harm's way by getting them to leave. It may be easier, as you point out, just to go outside and prevent that person from even coming into the practice, correct? Absolutely. And no, if the patient is, is known to be armed or if there's a history of violence, I would say absolutely do everything you can to keep them outside. That's where the security plan, in, in having a security plan in place is essential. I'm going to repeat this point to everyone listening. Um, I would imagine that almost no one has a written security plan um, in their practice. You probably have a, um, a a employee manual. You probably have a manual on how to deal with HIP and data breach. You almost certainly need to have a security plan. It doesn't require extraordinary effort, but the time to think about it is before there's a problem. Let's move on to another uh, real-world vignette. This is a patient who calls a practice, says she's unhappy with, with the care she received. She says her life is ruined. The patient's depressed. She now says she plans to kill herself. And you're not a psychiatrist, you're, you're a surgeon. Let's say in this case, a plastic surgeon. Um, hard to say how credible the threat is to take her life. Um, you want to call the police to do a, uh, a wellness check, a well person check. What should the practice be doing here? I mean, is their duty discharged at that point? Should they even get involved um, ab above and beyond just calling the police saying, I'm worried? And, and this is not an uncommon situation where people's expectations related to a particular operation may not have been met. There may be some underlying mental, uh, mental health issues. The patient may not have no access to a, a mental health professional. And here, the doctor's trying to figure out how to be helpful, but not overstep some limitations related to their background, training, and experience. Yeah, from my experience, um, I have to say that, you know, if, the, if there is suicidal ideation and there's discussion about and a person says that they plan to kill himself or herself i i always take that very seriously i do it for a reason um, i did an investigation as an fbi agent uh, of another agent uh, who committed suicide and it was uh, it was a sad thing but i learned a lot in talking to doctors and talking to psych psychiatrists psychologists uh, about suicide and the fact that if a person does talk about it uh, you should definitely take it seriously. You guys are the medical professionals and you know better than I do, but uh, this was a situation where um, this person had been demoted from uh, a position that, uh, that she loved 
she lost a lot of weight, a tremendous amount of weight. She talked about killing herself in the workplace, but no one really paid attention to that. And eventually she did. And so uh, I, you know, I saw a situation where there was a lot of discussion. There were a lot of red flags that just weren't, they, maybe they were noticed, but they weren't addressed. So, um, you know, take it as a credible threat, definitely. And calling the police to do a wellness check, that's absolutely essential. Um, what role does the, does the practice have beyond that? I would think anything that uh, with, you know, any, any assistance that could be provided maybe to, um, to the police or to um, uh, counselors or others that could be shared. And I know because of HIPAA laws that, you know, creates a wall and there's an issue with that. But I would say, um, you know, do the best that you can. Just first and foremost, take it seriously, engage the police and then go from there. Intelligence drives operations. And the more information that you have, the more you understand what action should be taken. We've certainly seen it where the patient and the family are happy eventually, may not be happy initially, but happy eventually that uh, the practice reacted and had the police show up. The patient was taken in, received appropriate uh, treatment for um, to prevent suicide. And once the crisis passed, they were saying, thanks for paying attention. All I saw was darkness in front of me. I saw no solution in front of me. And once they get treatment, they feel as if their life has turned around. It doesn't always turn out that way. But I think if you can take action, I, I don't see any downside in doing that to play an active role to try and help someone get the mental health they need. Here's the next vignette, uh, long-term employee who's been underperforming. The practice spoke to this employee about a remedial plan, still no improvement. This employee is well-liked, but the writing's on the wall. This employee is going to be fired. While the employee is aware of performance issues, you do know he will be shocked the practice fired, fired him. He's the sole breadwinner for the family. The family has a special needs child, is in debt. The practice expects a scene. They've been kicking the can down the road for a while on this. They know what's coming. They, nobody wants to do it. Um, what say you? It's not going to get know, better on its own. We know that. <laughs> Well, that's true. It, it never improves. Um, we recommend doing whatever can be done in these situations to ease the transition to the next job. Uh, that may be things like an employee severance package, uh, maybe uh, employee assistance uh, program, obviously uh, following termination, uh, potentially even um, a job assistance in locating the next job. Um, uh, uh, certainly don't contest unemployment benefits uh, if that becomes an issue. Uh, mm -hmm. Allow that. Make sure that you have clear communications when you terminate that employee. Uh, and, uh, and if you do offer a severance package, make that employee's behavior uh, or, or the, the, the package contingent upon that employee's behavior uh, so that, uh, that they know that, that they need to meet these certain goals in order to uh, receive or continue receiving the compensation after the employment is terminated. Uh, those are the things that, that uh, are, are easy to do and, and oftentimes diffuse the situation and eliminate the conflict. I mean, in this particular vignette, the, it sounds like everybody knew the, per, the employee was underperforming. Indeed, I'm guessing even the employee knew he was underperforming, but he thought he had a safe spot. Sometimes 
I think an employee sometimes takes it very personally. They think that the practice doesn't value them at all as a human being. But the better interpretation often is this individual is not a good fit for this particular job. Doesn't mean they're not a good fit for any job. It just means they're not a good fit for this job. And I think that's a fine distinction that if you can help this individual find a better position that's more aligned with their personality, with their skill set, and maybe prior experience, everybody may win. Now, it doesn't seem, this seems like a win lose situation, but certainly there are people who, with the benefit of hindsight and a couple of years under their belt, will look back saying that being terminated was the best thing that ever happened to him. But given given the fact pattern that I gave to you, families in debt, special needs child, um, we're not setting this up for a happy encounter. I think we're just trying to minimize the downside for not just for the practice, but also for this soon to be ex-employee. Let me just add one quick thing here, if I may. And I've, as a, an FBI executive, um, I, during my 23 year career, I ended up firing five FBI agents and I had to demote one uh, from a supervisory position. Uh, it's never comfortable. Uh, and these uh, FBI agents, you know, just remember that uh, these are armed individuals uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, you, I have to certainly plan on how you, you know, to best deliver that news to someone who's armed. Um, I, I think the important thing, too, it, it goes back to sometimes people will really take this personal and they shouldn't. And what I found worked the best for me. Every time I brought individuals into my office and had to deliver bad news, I always sat them down and I said to them, look, I want you to understand this is not personal. It's just business. And it was amazing how their whole demeanor changed because a lot of times people do think it's personal that you have uh, and, and they, they're offended by that. But it, in, in explaining to them that it is a business decision that has to be made, it's not a personal decision, I think it changes things. And I've actually seen it work uh, in terminating and delivering bad, bad news. And it's especially challenging when you like that person. I mean, if you've been around that person, you like that person, it's against human nature to want to fire someone that you like, even if you believe they're underperforming, that that person's underperforming. Absolutely. I guess nobody said it was easy being in leadership, did they? No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Let's finish up with this final vignette, again, all based on real world situations, most in the past year. So this is a um, an employee who has hit on several other employees after being told to stop. He jokes nonstop using sexual innuendo. His coworkers are creeped out. He's actually otherwise an excellent employee in terms of performance, but he hasn't seemed to get the memo. His coworkers have uh, stated that either this employee is fired or they will leave, and they'll leave in mass. So the employee is an, an avid hunter. He talked about a sizable gun collection. You are worried he will not leave quietly. So here's a guy who is talented. He performs well, um, and he creeps his fellow co-workers out, will not stop, and owns a gun. That would be uh, a similar situation in, in terms of trying to assist in the transition. Uh, first of all, I think you need to ensure that he's had clear communications all along the way. 
and and that he has been warned not just uh, one time or you know like you said multiple times he it 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 and, th and those have to be documented uh, 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 discussed clearly with him um, the uh, the idea of uh, of him uh, coming back with a gun uh, you know there are situations where uh, after a termination, it uh, it uh, makes a lot of sense to do a, a, a psychological threat assessment on an individual, and there are uh, threat assessment professionals uh, available that do this. We've honestly used them a number of times, both in the corporate sector and uh, and in other environments as well. Uh, and and they're they're not there to uh, psychoanalyze the individual and to see what his problems are, uh, but uh, but to do a uh, an analysis of the risk. And uh, we uh, typically introduce this individual into that situation with a uh, uh, with a phone call. Uh, it's not a, a, a meeting or an appointment, but a phone call. He calls him up on the phone or she and, and whichever the case may be and uh, uh, sets himself up or herself up as a, uh, a consultant hired by the practice uh, to have a discussion and understand uh, issues that uh, that he's expressed with with the with the business or with the practice. And during that communication, the uh, threat assessment professional assesses things like how well connected to the community is he? Um, uh, uh, you know, are they uh, well connected to the attend church, uh, or are they isolated? Are they uh, uh, going through a divorce? Are there family issues uh, uh, separated from uh, children? Things of that nature. Um, and and they, they, they look at these various different factors and make a determination as to whether or not this individual will create an ongoing risk or uh, any, any sort of a risk of uh, uh, physical threat. Um, once you have that analysis, then that's the intelligence you need to make the decision. How do you have that conversation? I mean, do would it, the employee in this situation accept the phone call? And then number two, would they disclose this information? I guess my my inclination would be I, i'm not even sure they would even talk but based on your experience do they talk i'm, I'm guessing the answer is yes because we're having this conversation right now Sur surprisingly i have never had one refuse to talk it, it's it's uh they they uh, for the most part they feel aggrieved they've been delivered a message that they didn't want to hear uh, and they feel like their story has not been told mm -hmm. they feel like they were not treated fairly that's why they're angry and and uh, and uh, they look uh, for an opportunity to have that discussion. And so here's someone who's not from the practice, who didn't do anything to this individual, but uh, somebody that's there to listen. And uh, they're able to make uh, 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 pretty good inroads. They get a lot of information. You would be amazed at the amount of information that that they will be able to get. And and from that, then they can make an informed decision. And then, then that informs your next steps. You know, do I call? Is it immediate? Do I call the police now, or do I get an executive protection uh, professional here, uh, or or are we just fine? Uh, if nothing else, it allows them to vent. And I think getting it off their chest sometimes gets rid of the steam. Doesn't mean it'll get rid of it permanently, but it keeps it from being bottled up, and it finds a path for egress. If you let that pressure uh, escape a little bit and then buy time with things like the severance package and making the severance package uh, contingent upon, uh, you know, continued good behavior, then uh, it, it tends to mitigate the risk. Well, it shows that you, I mean, 
if you put together a severance package, particularly for someone who's been there for quite a while, it does show that you care. You are worried about them landing on their feet, and that also sends another signal, as opposed to saying, look, you're not getting anything. You're out of here today. and Don't ever call us again, and particularly if they don't have a means for putting food on their table, it tends to create desperate behavior. Yeah, and these are really tough situations because you have all of the risk with the uh, aggrieved employee or the fired employee, but if you allow this to continue, what you've done is created a hostile work environment for your other employees, and that opens up uh, the other side of the, the, the risk equation, uh, the risk of litigation. Yeah, and in this particular case, what you heard was a collection of employees that said it's either us or him. And you're talking about seven or eight employees saying they're going to leave, which means the practice will shut down. And I'm sure this took a while to build up to the point where the seven or eight people got together and said, we're not going to take it any longer. In fact, I've heard this where they say, look, we love you. We, lo we love your practice. We love you as an individual. We just can't take having this creep around any longer. It's And we need you to to listen to us and take some action. And when it gets positioned like that, I mean, it's pretty clear what's going to happen. But the subtext is that the writing may have been in the wall well before that. It's just that everybody was kicking this can down the road because, you know, many, many people are averse to solving uh, a conflict. They, they don't like, they don't like being exposed to human conflict. Well, and, and honestly, uh, conflict left uh, uh, unaddressed never gets better. I wish it did, but you're right, it doesn't. Listen, I can't thank the two of you enough for joining me today. I've learned so much. I'm sure there's much more for me to learn. Are there any final comments you'd like to make to our audience? And also, please let our audience know how they can get in touch with you to learn more. Well, Dr. Siegel, I'd just like to start and uh, thank you very much for having us today. This is uh, this is actually a good exercise for us, too. We deal with a lot of the issues, the vignettes that you've presented. Uh, we've dealt with we uh, the, the questions that you've asked were, were very, very good questions. And clearly, um, likewise, as, we, as I said earlier in my comments, it's not just the medical profession, but these things happen in the business world and other professions as well. So uh, thank you for addressing these. And look, we are uh, we are a security consulting and a private investigations business. We do corporate investigations and security consultings in the in the corporate arena as well. Um, we are on call 24/7. Uh, Paul and I both have uh, over 70 plus years experience in law enforcement in the security field. Uh, we would love to chat with some of your clients if they have needs for our services. Uh, we can be reached on our website. Our, our 1-800 toll-free number is on there. Um, you know, repeat, we, your web, uh, repeat the website again for our audience, if you would. Yes, it's, uh, it's rampartgroup.com, R-A-M-P-A-R-T-G-R-O-U-P.com. Uh, feel free to take a look at us. Our, our bios are on there as well, list of services that we provide. Um, our 1-800 number is 800-421-0614. Uh, so feel free to give us a call uh, if you have any questions or if you would like to follow up on some of the discussion that we've had today, certainly be willing to, to chat with you and would love that opportunity. I have one final question. You said you're on call 24 seven, just to clarify, that's not 24 days a month, seven months a year, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, so I get to use that one as well. Too. You can that's use another, that. I use that's another good one I learned today. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I can't thank the two of you 
enough for being extremely generous with your time. I've learned plenty. I'm sure our audience has learned plenty. Let's promise to do this again, okay? We'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.